generous than I am. You're more compassionate than I am. You're more caring than I am. You're the best part of me. And I thank you for, Lord, your love that you've showed me. Lord, you're my best, you're, you're, Shelley, you're my best friend. You're my best friend. And I'm so thankful for you. So I better pray before I start crying. So let's pray. Father, we get together together today, this morning, to open up your word and to see how faithful you are to your people. And Lord, we get to see what your people's response is to that faithfulness. And so as we read in Joshua 24, I, I pray that we would be once again reminded of your faithfulness to us. And that Lord, we would respond to you in faithfulness as well. And I pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. You see, she gets honored and she leaves. <laughs> no, I, asked, I embarrassed her the first service. She didn't know it was coming the first service. She knew it was coming the second service. So, uh, but let's, 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 let's talk a little bit this morning about Joshua 24. Most of you are familiar with homecomings, whether it was from your high school experience or your college experience. And uh, my kids went to Franklinton High School, and some of the things at their homecoming included homecoming court. There's some pictures here. That's my daughter, Brooklyn. She didn't know I was going to embarrass her this morning, too. And then we got a trotter here, homecoming court. They would have parades downtown that looked like this. Um, They would have pet rallies and school spirit dress-up days where they would look, that's my son, like, why do they even dress like that? I don't get it, but... They would do these things, dances and tailgate parties and all these things around homecomings. And homecomings are just what the title describes them to be. They are opportunities for people to come home to the school that they went to to support their alma mater. Former students come back with current students and they support the school that they went to. Now, our passage this morning, Joshua 24, is a homecoming of sorts. So turn in your Bibles and look at verse 1 with me. Joshua 24, starting in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people. So Joshua gathers the leaders with all the rest of the people at this place called Shechem. And I want us to look back at another passage, Genesis chapter 12, so we can properly grasp the significance of what's going on in this opening verse. So look with me in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Skipping down to verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. To the oak of Morai. At the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this Land, So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Joshua is gathering all the people of Israel in the very same place that God's promise to Abraham had been made. This place called Shechem. A promise was made according to some estimates 700 years prior. 
So after years of homelessness, after centuries of slavery, and after decades of wilderness wanderings, they are standing on the very ground, the soil that had been promised to them through Abraham so very many years ago. So this must have been a grand homecoming indeed. And this is the setting by which Joshua speaks to the people in verse 2 as we continue reading. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan, and I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. With your eyes you saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought against you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And, I sent, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. These beautiful verses declare God's radical faithfulness to Israel. And he does this in four acts. Four acts of God's faithfulness, if you will. God was faithful to them in the patriarchs. God was faithful to them in the deliverance from Egypt. God was faithful to them in their conquest east of the Jordan. And God was faithful to them in their conquest west of the Jordan. In Act 1, we're informed that Abraham, his dad and his brother, worshipped other gods beyond the river. So the Godfather of the faith, if you will, was serving other gods prior to God's rescuing hand. I think this is a sobering fact because we normally think of our heroes of the faith as being these squeaky clean good people that God would be a fool not to accept. But this is not the case. Abraham was not like Mr. Clean. No. <laughs> he was much more like Pigpen. And not just him, but his father, his brother, as we'll read in verse 14, the Israelites when they were in Egypt, and even the people standing before him because he's having to ask them to lay down their false gods when we get to the next section. 
And not just them, but you and I as well. Listen to the sobering reality of our condition before a holy God. Isaiah 64 reads this. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Psalm 14. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Romans 3.23, that famous verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're actually going to work through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 this morning. But just the first three verses, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So the sobering reality is that on our very best days, the things that we would put on our resume and hand to God, they are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. There's none of us, not one person in this room who does good, not one. We all have fallen short of God's glory. We were dead men and women who were following other gods. Gods of this world, the devil, our flesh, and our own desires. You see, this is the reality of who we really are apart from God's rescuing hand. But God does not leave his people in that state. In verse 3 of Joshua 24 of our passage this morning, God took Abraham out of that land. He took him out of a life of idolatry. He led him and he made his offspring many. He gave him Isaac, and Isaac gave him two grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. Richard Hess comments here that God's work with Israel began by enabling Abram to worship God alone. So in Act 1, God is reminding his people that he is a radically faithful and he was radically faithful to their forefathers. Act 2 begins with a shift from what God has done to their ancestors in the past to what God has done to them in more recent days. Many of them had firsthand experience of God's faithfulness and his deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. God has sent Moses and Aaron in the plague so that they were released. And when their slave masters pursued them, at the Red Sea, God miraculously caused the water to come over them and wipe them out. You see, they had been witnesses to the miraculous rescuing hand of God. And then there's this brief statement at the end of verse 7 that captures 40 years of wilderness, a long time in the wilderness. It says that, And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Yeah, they did. They lived for 40 years in a desert wilderness because God faithfully provided for them. He made bitter water sweet. He made water come from rocks. He made 
He gave them bread each and every day miraculously. He brought a wind one time where quail fell on the ground for them to eat. And it says that their clothes and their sandals did not even wear out. Now, Daniel's wearing chacos. Those are some good shoes, but they don't come with a 40-year warranty. These are just foretastes of what God had done for them, of his radical faithfulness to the Israelites and their exodus from Egypt. And then in Act 3, recalls God's faithfulness to them east of the Jordan. God had given them victory over Sihon and Og, these two Amorite kings. And when Balak, the king of Moab, tried to hire this prophet Balaam, this prophet for prophet, if you will, to curse them so that he could defeat them and kick them out of the land, God calls Balaam to bless them instead. He turned his cursing into blessing. This was God once again keeping his promise to them when he said he would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. See, these accounts once again communicate God's faithfulness to his people. God was radically faithful to them east of the Jordan. And then finally in Act 4, we have a recount of God's faithfulness to them in the most recent days west of the Jordan. Back in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10, we read this. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and all those ites. You see, this had now been fulfilled. So they should know that the living God is among them because he drove away all those other nations when he sent the hornet before them. Now, if you're anything like me, you're like, what's up with this hornet thing? Okay? So more than likely, the hornet is a metaphor for the fear and the terror that God calls amongst the people of Canaan when he provided Israel the victories over them. Back in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, in the account with Rahab, they, she said, The fear of you has fallen upon us. And then later in verse 11, our hearts melted. This was prophesied by God all the way back in Exodus 23, verse 27 and 28, when he said, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. And listen here. I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. All those ites. See, the point is here that God was the one who was acting on their behalf. He was faithful. He had eliminated everyone who stood in their way. It was not their military tactics. It was not their military strategy. It was not their weapons. No, God did it all. All throughout these 13 verses of Joshua 24, God is portrayed as the active provider in Israel as the passive recipient. If you were to take your pen out and circle in those 13 verses, all the times the word I is used in reference to God, you would circle it almost 20 times. Over and over and over again, these verses remind us of this amazing truth. God took, God gave, God sent, God brought, God put, God destroyed, God delivered, God did, God did, God did. 
Now, do you know the most, uh, the three most feared words for parents around Christmas time? Anybody know what that is? It's these words right here. Right? It feels like this sometimes on the next slide, right? You know, some assembly required and you, a log comes out for a table. But this is not what we see in these four acts of God's faithfulness to his people. What is described in these verses is much different. It's not some assembly required. It is no assembly required. Look in your Bibles at verse 13. Everything comes already assembled. Everything. Psalm 44 communicates it with song this way. O God, we have heard with our eyes. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. No, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You see, the Israelites had no need for a land developer. They had no need for a city planner, no need for architects or contractors. No farmers needed to prep the soil or plant the vines or the trees. No, it was all done. The cities were built, the homes were ready to move into, the vineyards and orchards were planted and already producing fruit. No assembly required because God is radically faithful to his people. So the first 13 verses of our passage, God through Joshua is declaring his radical faithfulness to his people over their history. God was faithful to the patriarchs. God was faithful in their deliverance from Egypt. God was faithful in their conquest east and west of the Jordan. And the point of them recounting these four acts of Israel's history was to remind them that God is faithful. He is graciously faithful. He is astonishingly faithful. He is preservingly faithful. He is lovingly faithful. He is a radically faithful God. And as we ponder God's radical faithfulness in rescuing the Israelites, it's hard for the Christian to not hear the words of Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, resounding a similar message to us. We read in, a, we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that we all followed other gods. But then comes verse 4. Read with me. There's a but. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. 
You see, these verses reveal the same radically faithful God who did the rescuing work on behalf of Israel. And he's the same radically faithful God rescuing every follower of Christ. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, he made us alive. He raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. There's no assembly required. He did it all. It was complete grace, not one ounce of work on our part. And friend, this is the beauty of the gospel. That even though you follow other gods, you you could have done some of the most despicable things. But God, by grace, through faith, can rescue even you. Our radically faithful God is faithful to rescue all who cry out to him. In faith. Now, what is the proper response to such faithfulness? What is the response that just makes sense to a faithfully God, a radically faithful God? Look at it in verse 14 as Joshua continues. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. In middle school, I took a chemistry class. And besides getting to exercise my pyromania by messing around with those things called Bunsen burners, I learned what a catalyst was. And so if you slept and snoozed through chemistry, a catalyst is simply a substance that it, it speeds up chemical reactions. The most common uh, catalyst that you may be familiar with is yeast. You put yeast in bread, and when it interacts with the sugars and the other ingredients, uh, the enzymes feed off those sugars, and it causes the dough to rise. So in baking, yeast is added, and it speeds up that chemical reaction. See how it works? A catalyst just speeds up and causes a reaction. Well, God's faithfulness, his radical faithfulness that we read in the first 13 verses of our passage speeds up and results in the reaction that we see in the verses we just read, 14 through 24. 
God's faithfulness is the catalyst for Joshua's call for the people's faithfulness. And he does this by calling them to choose. To choose that very day between two options. Serve the Lord or serve other gods. Now why wasn't there a third option? Serve no one. Why is Joshua only giving them these two choices? Well, I don't know if the theologian Bob Dylan has ever been quoted in a North Wake sermon before, but he's about to. Because in 1979, Bob Dylan wrote and recorded a very insightful song titled, Gotta Serve Somebody. Listen to the, a portion of the lyrics. They'll also be on the screen behind me. I could probably sing them better than Bob Dylan, but I'm not going to try. It says, um, You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barbershop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be someone's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. And then he gets to the chorus. Listen to this. But you're going to have to serve somebody, yes. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. No matter what you think about Bob Dylan's music, his lyrics are spot on. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. You will serve somebody. Serving nobody is not an option. Listen to how another more accepted theologian puts it. Paul Tripp writes this. Human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. You see, Bob Dylan knew this. Paul Tripp knows this. And Joshua did as well. This is why he calls the people to make a decision. But like all good leaders, Joshua does not wait for them to make a decision before he makes his own. He has already made up his mind. And he leads by example when he says probably his most famous words, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No matter what Israel decides, Joshua has made his decision. And like all good leaders, he takes the first step. He's all in on serving the Lord. So what do the people do? It's interesting. They recount in their own words all that the Lord had done for them. All those things we read in those first 13 voice, uh, verses. And they commit to serving him as well. So at this point, you would think Joshua would be like, yes. I mean, you guys chose so wisely. Thank you for making the right choice. But he doesn't. In this shocking turn, he tells them that they're not able to serve the Lord. It was like in middle school all over again. He was like, psych! Just kidding. It's not really a choice. But Joshua did give them a choice. He gave them two options. And one of those was to serve the Lord. So what was Joshua up to here? I think he's doing a couple of things. The first thing I think Joshua's up to is he wants them to count the cost of their decision. He does not want them to make an emotional, impulsive decision without any intention of following through, without wholeheartedly pursuing it. Jesus would put it this way in Luke chapter 14. 
when he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? You see, to follow God, we must be willing to give our all, even our own life. And that's what Joshua is asking the Israelites to consider. I don't know if you guys are familiar with a hog's dilemma, but I think a hog's dilemma is helpful here. Listen to this hog's dilemma. A hen and a hog were walking past a church, and they noted the pastor's sermon title on the outside of the bulletin board. And here's what the bulletin board read. What can we do to help the poor? It was a question. What can we do to help the poor? The story goes on that as hogs and hens are wont to do, they entered into earnest conversation about the question as they continued on their way. And at last, the hen was smitten with a bright idea. I've got it, she cackled. We can help the poor by giving them ham and eggs for breakfast. The pig paused and thought, oh, no, you don't, shot back the hog. For that only means a contribution for you. But for me, it's a complete sacrifice. The hog was right. And this is Joshua's point. As Del Davis puts it, there can be no chicken's way out. God's people must go whole hog in for God. That was the same was true for them. The same is true for us as well. Paul, the apostle, would write this in Romans 12. When he gets through talking about the faithfulness of God in the first 11 chapters, and he turns to the people in chapter 12, verse 1, he writes this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Like Joshua, Paul says that the only reasonable response to a radically faithful God is wholehearted faithfulness in return. He says that this only makes sense that we would present all of who we are to this God who has given us all of who He is. So Joshua is calling the Israelites to give all of themselves to God. Just like Paul calls all followers of Christ to give all of themselves to God as well. There's one more thing I think Joshua's up to in this shocking turn of events. I think he's helping them understand some of the passages that we read earlier. That there is none righteous. That all of us fall short of God's glory. That apart from God's faithfulness, that we are unable to be faithful to Him. You see, God's faithfulness always undergirds our ability to be faithful to him. Listen to how Ephesians 2 verse 10 puts it as we continue that passage out. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's only after God's faithfulness that has been exercised that we can become faithful. 
Ephesians 4, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, undergird verse 10. And it's only in Christ Jesus that we do good works now. What was once filthy rags now becomes something pleasing to God. You see, we work out of our salvation, not for our salvation. We walk in faithfulness because God was first faithful to us. And it's with these things in mind that Joshua warns the people against what we would call cheap grace or easy believism. And he roots this in two key attributes of God, his holiness and his jealousy. You see, because God is holy, he will not forgive those who persist in sin and cling to false gods. And because he is jealous, he will not share his beloved with another. The people of Israel need to count the cost. The cost for them would be harm and consumption to those who forsake him, according to our passage. But for those who will incline their hearts to him, he will do good and he is radically faithful. So with each warning from Joshua, the people respond that they will serve the Lord. And with their decision made clear, time and time again, we read Joshua's response in verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his own inheritance. So the deal was sealed. With God's faithfulness as the catalyst for their faithfulness, the people made a commitment to serve the Lord, and then they went home. Now don't miss this. A people who did not have a home for nearly 700 years went home. They finally embraced their inheritance. What a grand day. Their homecoming had been a great success. And then the book of Joshua concludes peacefully with these three burial notices, starting in verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. And as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. In a piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the fathers of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. So with the land conquered and in their possession, God fulfilling all of his promises, Joshua receives the same epitaph as Moses, servant of the Lord. 
If you go back and look at chapter 1, verse 1, Joshua is called Moses' assistant. And here, at the end of his life, he is given the same title as Moses, servant of the Lord. What a great epitaph. What a great legacy. Also, Joseph's bones are finally buried in the promised land, and Eleazar is buried in the land that was given to him. A satisfying and peaceful conclusion to the book of Joshua. So Joshua chapter 24, the passage that we're looking at this morning, is about God's faithfulness. And I've given it the title, Faithfulness Begets Faithfulness. Because it shows how God's radical faithfulness is the catalyst for our faithfulness in return to Him. You see, their commitment to serve the Lord was the only reasonable response to such a radically faithful God. So what does this mean for you and me? Because the God that is described in Joshua 24 is the same radically faithful God today. And we know this because His faithfulness is recorded throughout the Scriptures that we hold in our hands and that we read on a regular basis. And not only that, but for every person in this room who's been saved, we have our own personal stories and testimonies of God's faithfulness to us in rescuing us from a life of following the world to a life of following Him. How should you respond to such faithfulness? How is God's faithfulness a catalyst for your faithfulness? You know, Paul said that presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice was the only reasonable worship worthy of such a radically faithful God. But C.S. Lewis once said this, The problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. So where do you need God's help to stop crawling off the altar? You see, Joshua allowed God's faithfulness to move him to say his most famous words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He committed himself to the Lord, even in a land of an idolatry. The land they had overtaken was full of idolatry. And he was willing to go against the cultural current. It's the same is true for us today. We even live in a land of idols. We might not touch them and see them, but materialism, greed, power, comfort, security, pleasures. Will you go against the current of this world? And make the same commitment Joshua did. That as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So during this response time as the praise team comes up. As Joshua put it. Choose this day whom you will serve. Remember that there's only two choices. Whom will you and your house serve? Church, remember that he is a faithful God, that it is His faithfulness that precedes your faithfulness. So as you ponder that question and as you respond to it today, come to Him. Come to His altar, for that is where you encounter this radically faithful God. Let me pray for you. Father, Your Word is beautiful. 
as we recount the ways that you were faithful to your people Israel over and over and over again. That you did so many things. It was by your hand that they received all that they received. And Father, as we've read in Ephesians 2, it is by your grace and your mercy and your love that any of us can have the hope of a relationship with you. Lord, you did it all. So now, Lord, stir our hearts. Allow your faithfulness to prompt us to respond to you with our own faithfulness. Lord, let us give our lives as a living sacrifice to you, which is the only reasonable response to such faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.